What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a children's literature specialist in an academic library, I'm blessed to engage with a wide range of books in every genre and in every format. My own personal tastes are wide-ranging and very eclectic. So as you continue to tune in, you'll probably hear a lot about the different kinds of books I love to read and share with my community. Today, however, I'd like to focus on one of my current favorites, the Lockwood and Company series by Jonathan Stroud. Designed for late elementary and middle school readers, Stroud has created a most intriguing adventure series. Laced with mystery, a little horror, and lots of humor, these books recount the tale of Lucy Carlyle, who lives in a version of historical London that is plagued by ghosts. To fight the plague, a number of psychic investigation agencies have been founded, and since they are the only ones who can really see the ghost, the agencies employ gifted children. Lucy finds herself at the smallest and most run-down of these agencies, run by Anthony Lockwood. But when Lucy and her companions find themselves staying overnight in one of the most haunted houses in England, they find that solving this mystery could make them one of the most renowned agencies out there. And thus begins Lucy's adventures, which are now chronicled in three books, The Screaming Staircase, The Whispering Skull, and The Hollow Boy with spot-on characters, an imaginative and interesting setting, and tons of action in the plot, this series will have wide appeal with readers who love something that's just a little bit spooky, laced with just a little bit funny. Stroud's knack for getting his heroine and heroes into and out of sticky situations is perfect and makes me as a reader cheer every single time. And that's a recommendation I hope some readers you know will enjoy, straight from Rachel's World. Welcome to Worlds Awaiting. Today, Rachel will introduce us to Carrie Soper, known by students and colleagues for his expertise in pop culture. Carrie is also an author and artist. He and Rachel talk about the power of media and how we can help our children with the ability to discern its influence. Carrie Soper teaches interdisciplinary humanities and American studies at BYU with research focused on comic strips, satire, and popular film. He is presently working on a book about Gary Larson, creator of the comic strip The Far Side. Here's Rachel and Carrie. We're talking with Carrie in studio today. Welcome, Carrie. Hi, Rachel. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about visual kinds of literacies and just the visual nature of our society today. I know you study comics and and film and other types of things and looking at how the visual aspects of our world have impacted us. So tell us a little bit about how you think that has changed over time. Well, we are immersed or inundated with, you know, visual imagery. It's often, you know, loud. I mean, we've got all this CGI and um, special effects and advertising that is very garish. And, and so we can sometimes experience a, a bit of uh, sensory overload. And so it, it's important to be able to slow down and uh, think carefully about what's happening as we're being impacted by it. I know as a scholar, you approach these types of things in a very critical way. So how do you frame this conversation of these visual images and their impact on society as a scholar? Well, you know, when I teach uh, about comics, I help people to slow down 
and realize what's going on psychologically, intellectually, emotionally as they're engaging with uh, comics. Uh, for example, in their distilled, simplified form, where they're broken up into these panels, we are bringing a lot of our own thoughts and feelings to the completion of the narrative. Um, the space between panels, for example, is called a gutter, and often there's a lot taking place between those those two panels. So it's almost like we're a, a filmmaker that's editing or splicing together those two frames. So I think you know, slowing down and being able to understand uh, the formal elements, the mechanisms of these visual devices is really enlightening. Um, you know, when you, when you look at movies and advertising that, that rely on, you know, big, powerful archetypes or garish imagery that's visually stimulating or appealing, it's important to uh, gain some of the critical thinking that comes from disciplines like uh, semiotics. Uh, semiotics, as applied to popular culture, is simply a way of deconstructing or breaking apart the way that powerful values and myths and ideas get communicated through um, iconic symbols. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone has to go to college and take some critical theory class, right? But they could if they wanted they could, to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but in... I think organic ways you can uh, train yourself and your family to do some of these kind of theoretical moves. For example, you know, the Marlboro cigarette latched on to this iconic image of the American cowboy and used it to sell a product that was actually quite harmful to people who, who purchased it. Um, the advertisers who created that visual campaign in the 1950s were actually trying to revive a cigarette that had been marketed up until that time to women. And so somehow they repackaged it and were able to get people to associate this almost, you know, generic cigarette with all of these notions of male masculinity and freedom, a, a whole package of ideas that had accrued around that sign through years of people watching popular Western movies. Um, so the manipulative power of that symbol was was incredible. Yeah. I think it's interesting that so much of that is unconscious, that we don't really realize it's out there. And so often parents want to protect their children or help them, you know, keep them away from these kinds of things. But they're out there and they're available. And for me, one of the critical things is helping them be critical about it, because especially in this day and age, they're going to encounter them. And if they don't have some of these critical skills at looking at this and saying, okay, what message is it trying to send me? How am I interpreting this message? I think we're sending our kids out kind of unarmed <laughs> into Absolutely. a co confusing world. Well, and, you know, as a, a parent myself, I've raised two, you know, teenage daughters, the imagery that they encounter in this whole beauty industry, all these fashion magazines, and the way that, you know, filters into popular film and television as well. If, you, if you're not talking about that actively with your, your daughters as they grow up and sort of deconstructing it, like, you know, just using your own critical thinking skills, they can be easily um, swayed or, or affected. I mean, we just look at some of the, you know, trauma that comes with eating disorders and other self-esteem issues if, if girls become too invested in the uh, myths or notions that undergird these constructed images, you know, images that are often airbrushed and uh, idealized in 
unrealistic uh, degrees. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. People seem to be more aware of this today, yeah. but at the same time, it, it is a very individual experience, too. So part of the critical literacy that we're trying to build here is how is this impacting me as an individual? And that's not something we can we can say to all girls, oh, you know, you need to not see this in this way because not all will interpret that cowboy image with the same emotionality. That's true. It, it depends on your own background or, or cultural uh, formation. You know, there was a, a demographic that bought into that cowboy archetype. But, you know, if, if you're a Native American kid that grew up on a reservation, you're going to see that icon radically, you know, differently, right, than, than some kid that, who grew up in the suburbs playing cowboys and Indians. Or, yeah, know. yeah. And I mean, it's it's really interesting to see how people in advertising and film and even in comics use these things to help kind of essentially manipulate us into that place. So how do we help our children understand that? What are some concrete things we can do to help them understand that sometimes they are being manipulated and, and they need to deal with that in a very positive way? Well, I think, you know, some parents get overwhelmed and they think, I just need to shut all this stuff out. Like I need to protect my child. And so there are these draconian measures taken to kind of censor everything that, that a child watches. I think that is important. I mean, we don't just set our kids loose, right? But, you know, I think you do them a disservice by trying to artificially shelter them from all of the me media that their friends are engaging with. I think parents need to, to jump in and um, participate with their kids in consuming that entertainment and making it a family tradition to enjoy it, but also to talk critically about it, sort of dissecting some of the um, manipulative mechanisms going on or some of the, the, the myths that are, are uh, sort of supported or communicated by different heroic archetypes. And maybe even questioning whether we really want to elevate those figures as our uh, ultimate sort of you know, examples. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, especially when we talk about teens. In particular, this is so much a part of their lives and just a part of their identity fulfillment. Yeah, so to be culturally literate as a teenager, you've got to be able to go to school and talk in a very adept way about these superhero sort of genre, you know, conventions or hero types. Um, and then, you know, for younger kids, it's like the latest animated Pixar movie or, or Disney film. It's like a new set of fairy tales or myths for the, the 21st century. Yeah, it is. And helping them understand how that is and then take what's good from it and then reject what's bad in that discussion that you said we need to have. And that becomes a different experience than just the consumption part Exactly. Of it. Well, I mean, the, the movie-going experience um, can't really be stopped in, in mid-viewing. Like, you were in this theater, kind of immersed in darkness with Dolby surround sound, and you're not even aware sometimes of other people around you. It's such a transporting out-of-body experience. And so it's hard to have your critical faculties on alert during the moment, and so you need to take time later. Let me just add that um, we often use movies as uh, babysitters. Like we just stick them in the, DV or, or the DVD player, and sometimes they'll run back-to-back for toddlers or young kids without us ever even engaging with, with our kids, right? So that becomes a, a real powerful part of their worldview. Um, and these, these animated films can have very positive things going on, but they can also do strange things occasionally that, that aren't necessarily positive. For example, Disney during the um, 20th century 
had this practice of taking old fairy tales that had sort of rougher, darker edges, often cautionary tales that introduced the notion of death or other you know, dark adult lessons in, in powerful ways to children. And Disney softened those edges and often made them feel-good movies that flattered you know, uh, a very sheltered sort of suburban worldview. Like The Little Mermaid becomes a celebration of teenage sort of rebellion rather than what it originally was, sort of a cautionary tale about listening to your parents when it comes to notions of, of romance or who you should marry. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And for me, one of the things I love to do is compare and contrast because especially with these hugely archetypal things. They come in so many different forms. And so I love to take like the original fairy tale and the movie version and this other person's version and help compare and contrast it. And we can even do that with very young kids. They're very sophisticated in their thinking. I think sometimes we we don't give the young kids enough credit. (laughs) For how critical they can be. Yeah, how critical they can be. Yeah. Yeah. What a cool idea to to show them multiple adaptations of the same fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even even the younger kids are so critical about what they watch. And I think we can just give them that credit to say, look, you know, I'm critical about it too. And maybe I don't understand everything that I'm seeing, or maybe I'm not interpreting it the best way. So this kind of discussion, I think is... Dialogue where you learn from them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know I've learned even in my scholastic career as as a scholar I learned so many things from kids they see things that I don't necessarily see as an adult Absolutely. so being able to talk with them I think is an amazing balance of all of this information being open to their ideas as well that's great yeah that's a great thing to end on thanks so much for your time today Carrie appreciate it thanks Rachel That was Rachel Wadham speaking with Carrie Soper, who teaches American Studies in the BYU College of Humanities. We'll turn our attention now to how to engage toddlers and preschoolers with technology. Lisa Cohn talks about the importance of making screen time learning time. She will also recommend online sources that are age-appropriate and educational. Lisa is the Utah Education Network's Community Partnerships Manager. Prior to her work at UEN, she was an educator and administrator in Utah and Arizona, working with emotionally disabled students. Lisa Cohn, visiting with World's Awaiting host, Rachel Wadham. Welcome, Lisa. We're so glad to have you here today. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Let's talk a little bit about digital literacies, especially for that preschool age. I know there's a lot of research out there, and sometimes it can be really contradictory and hard for parents to understand. So let's try to kind of break it down a little bit. What What do you think is the most important thing that parents need to understand, especially for their toddlers or preschoolers, about the engagement with technology and digital literacies? Well, so there are a couple things. First of all, the American Pediatric Association has declared that screen time really needs to be limited for under age two. And um, if you've ever been out and about or had a screaming toddler in the backseat of the car, um, people know that's not necessarily reality. (laughs) So one of the important things that I think parents need to know is that um, screen time needs to be educational time. And I know that can be overwhelming, finding things that are age-appropriate, the content um, to be very specific and educational is really hard to come by. And that is challenging because there is so much available in so many different formats. I think one of the hard things is when we say screen time, we mean phones and 
tablets and computers and televisions and all of these kinds of things. It's such a it's such a broad category at this point. Exactly, exactly. And being able to capture the right fit for your child, for your family, I think is really challenging. Yeah. And I, I think that's ideal for me because one of the things I've noticed is, like I said, the con- the research is really contradictory. And even though the uh, pediatric Association says, you know, nothing before two, that the reality doesn't always fit that, as you noted. And so I think the trick is finding what's right for you, your children, and your family. Exactly, exactly. And, and a couple of the things that um, UEN has done, um, the Utah Education Network, we've partnered with um, Utah Kids Ready to Read, which is part of the Utah State Library Association. And um, we've created online websites that really are a warehouse Um, for parents so that they can one-stop shop and they know it's safe, it's been vetted. We actually have the research housed, the limited research that there is actually housed in some of those spots. And one of the things that I like that the Utah Kids Ready to Read states is that their website is from zero to age five Mm. and it's really focused on ready to read. The goal is not for that website not having kids reading by age five. There's no um, pressure. It's ready-to-read skill, which is really nice. Yeah, and I think that's really important, especially from that zero to five age group, that we just need to strike a, a balance for what's appropriate for uh, for our children because, you know, what's right for one child isn't necessarily going to be right for another child, um, even as it comes to screen time rules and all of that kind of thing. So how would you suggest um, parents kind of find that balance? What, what are some things that you think would be good for them to understand about finding the right balance that fits for them and their children? Well, so one of the things that I think is really important comes from um, the Fred Rogers Center, and they really have come out with some strong recommendations that intentionality of the app or of the program that you're using is really important. So one of the things that we use at UEN is a lot, a lot of PBS programming, because PBS, we know number one is the number one trusted logo Mm -hmm. in the country by parents. And then um, the programs are researched. There's actually research behind everything from Sesame Street to Super Y and and even now Daniel Tiger, which yeah. is a takeoff and a continuation from Fred Rogers' really important messages. And one of the things I love about PBS is that not only is the intentionality of the kind of the educational content involved, but also the intentionality of the interaction, because I think that's part of the intentionality. It's not just the education content. It's the intentionality of the parents interacting with their children. So even a lot of the PBS content, what we see is, you know, the characters speaking off the screen to the the child in the television shows or interactive kinds of things on the web. And then that provides the parents a really great structure for them to start intentionally interacting with their children. Exactly, exactly. Well, and then, um, and it's not just about, it's not just about reading and writing and numeracy, but like the program that I mentioned before, Daniel Tiger is about social skills. And that I think is a big fear among parents with, you know, oh, my kid is addicted to the, to the media. PBS has done a great job with transmedia, taking yeah. it across, not just from the TV, and, but to the iPad with a game yeah. that supports the, whether they were talking about um, bedtime with Daniel Tiger, they take it and then there's a game or um, an interactive media yeah. that supports that skill that they were working on. Um, and then it's a good reminder 
for parents as well yeah. to follow up with. And that's another great thing that PBS does with these early learning programs is they also really pay attention to is it entertaining for a child and a parent? Can they both engage? And yeah. that that's really important. I think that that's one of the things I've always loved about Sesame Street, kind of the quintessential <laughs> uh, program is is that sense of, you know, there's there's humor there at an adult level that we can understand and that we can laugh at. But there's also um, the delight that comes with childhood at the same time. So I think that's a great thing about having these kinds of things, especially cross-platform, that we can we can interact with our children on a very intimate level around these kinds of medias we're kind of in a new world. And I think sometimes it's um, the adults and parents that are scared of all of this. And, and the kids know how to do it without any question. And so it's it's really about us as adults in this situation to change our thinking in a little bit way. And part of that is just kind of redefining what we mean by literacy. Exactly. And we also need to pay attention that parents now are millennials, right? Mm, so yeah. um at my age, um, Sesame Street has a nostalgia that yeah. is um, very, like Fred Rogers, very different from a young 30-year-old parent yeah. of three children who is more the Nickelodeon perception or grew up more with Blue's Clues, mm-hmm. um, which was a great program. Yeah. That's where their um, reference is coming yeah. from. And so we, we need to be mindful as we are educating these new young parents yeah. about broadening their view and and this nostalgia means something different for them as well. That's a, that's a really great point because I think we can we can define literacies or define how we interact with literacies with our children in very narrow ways sometimes just because of our own experience and our own expectations. Exactly. And being able to look more broadly, I think is is a really important thing. Cuz again, I think the the very basic here is we need to figure out what works best for us and our our families and being critical about the information that we get as adults and parents and guardians of children helps us just figure out what works best for us. And kids and families are all so different. So the adaptability with the right intentionality coming behind that and balance, I think, are just absolutely critical. Yeah, I think finding the right balance, um, being intentional about what we do, and then adapting it to every individual child's needs is, is kind of the takeaways of all of this. Understanding that every child is different is really probably the most important piece. Yeah. And even even listening to our little ones, they're so intelligent. And I think sometimes we we can underestimate our toddlers and our preschoolers. Absolutely. And not uh, not give them the openness that we can to speaking to them. So how would you suggest uh, parents do that? How how could they listen? What are maybe some strategies that you would advise? Um, well, I think the um, the five strategies that the Utah Kids Ready to Read has the talk, sing, read, write, play every day yeah. are really, really important to do all of those things. And your parents are already doing those, but it's, again, that intentionally, oh, we just sing a song. And that was, you were practicing literacy. Yeah. And I think that that's just um, the best advice is pay attention to those yeah. key strategies. And I, again, those strategies, the 
we may not even associate it with, we may not associate singing with building literacies, especially for small ones, or playing. But those are so, so important um, to, to build those literacies. And I think there's so much we can do and so many resources available. And the off, ones offered um, at through UEN, the Utah Education Network, uh, are great. But there's also, if you're not in Utah, there's great resources through your local libraries and through all kinds of things that you can access some of these amazing resources. So thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Rachel Wadham talking with Lisa Cohn about using the internet as an educational resource for toddlers and preschoolers. We finish our program today with Andy Bay, director of The Appleseed, a storytelling show on BYU Radio. Taylor Miranda talks to Andy about his memories of growing up in a family that encouraged reading. What book or books have made a difference in your life? There are probably too many to mention, actually. I grew up in a home without a TV, but every kid had a library card. And we also had, I mean, many, many, many hundreds of books, if not even thousands. I'm not sure. We had a lot of books, and we read a lot as, as kids. And so books were, they were really meaningful to me. They were, have long been part of my identity. So um, the books that, that came to my mind, and I'm sorry, that was a very roundabout introduction, but one was called Andrew Henry's Meadow um, by uh, Doris Byrne. It's a story, I was the fourth of nine kids. Fourth children are notoriously, you know, sort of absent from, they're, they're sort of they're a little bit lost in the shuffle, um, you might say. Um, that was probably true of me, although I had a very, I think, wonderful upbringing. But the, it's a book about a kid named Andrew Henry who is sort of has has these talents for building things and creating things in his home, and they're completely unappreciated. His, it drives his mom nuts. His sisters are so not interested in anything he does. His dad just gets home tired and doesn't want to see any mess and really doesn't want really isn't really involved in his life and so he he basically finds his own place in a meadow through the woods and off in some distant place he takes off and he builds his own home there and one by one other kids start following him to this meadow and he builds each of them a home which is um, like unique to their personality and their interests. You know, there's a, a tree house that's kind of like a big aviary. And then there's this underground house for a kid who likes, you know, different kind of bugs and, and other animals. And, and every kid has his or her own house. Anyway, of course, finally, people are like, hey, where'd all the kids go? And they look, they cannot find the, the kids anywhere. And then, all of a sudden, the families realize, actually, we do care about these kids, and why haven't we really noticed this? But it's a story sort of about a family learning to appreciate what their, what their child is, their talents and their personality, and... Um, and it's just, it's a fantastic story. And it's the kind of story in the way the illustrations are too. They're, they just, they grip you. But 
It's a story that you can easily, almost any kid in any sort of um, family really, can easily insert himself or herself into that story and, and see um, the way that that would be meaningful to them. Because every kid is trying to find, who am I in my family? In what way am I meaningful? And who's going to notice me and see who I, who I really am? Does anyone know who I really am? Um, and so the book really goes at that. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible book. Did that book help you feel like you found kind of your meaning within your own family? Um, I, I don't know if it did, um, but it, cert- it certainly gave me hope that maybe I would. Like, and this book was proof of it, that people could understand like, wait a sec, hey, Andy, you know, this or that. Um, we should, you know, we should pay attention to what he says or what he does kind of thing. But it gave me satisfaction that even if people did not really see who I really was in the way that I wanted to be seen, it could happen. Taylor Miranda for Worlds Awaiting, talking with Andy Bay about a favorite book from childhood. Andy Bay produces The Appleseed, Tellers and Stories on BYU Radio. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.